Hello and welcome to Seeing Red. I'm Mark, your host and partner in crime for the next half an hour or so. Um, apologies for the slightly croaky voice. I've got man flu, so poor me um, and poor you because you're going to have to put up with an even worse voice than usual. Um, thank you for joining me once again and happy Christmas if you are listening to this on... I'll say the intended day of release because it was always our intention to release this episode on Christmas Day, um, but I may release it a day or two early for those that are travelling on um, Christmas Eve. And we did debate long and hard about whether to release the episode on Christmas Day. Uh, My thoughts were that most people would be too busy tucking into their turkey dinner to notice that the episode had dropped. But then Bethan said not everybody is surrounded by food and people and fun on Christmas Day. Um, And she's got a point. So um, this episode is especially for you if you are alone this Christmas. Although I'm not really sure a podcast episode entitled Mass Murder in the Skies is the way to go. Um, But hey ho, each to their own, I guess. This episode will be the last episode presented by just me. I'm sure you'll be pleased to hear. Bethan will be back with a bang from January when we return on Wednesday the 8th. So you can look forward to the usual banter and abuse and swearing, Um, so get ready to fill your boots. And I will just issue a slight warning at this point, I've had two glasses of wine before recording this episode, so um, that was just to make me feel a bit better, I don't normally do it. Uh, You might hear me stumble over the odd word, I'll try and edit it out, but uh, we'll see how we get on. Thanks as ever to all of our Patreon supporters who have given so generously this year. See, I told you I'd stumble. Um, We started 2019 with just 12 of you, which was still absolutely amazing. But we will end the year with 68 of you, which is just unreal. Our very own Patreon army. Thank you so much for your support and of course special thanks go to our most recent entrance to this exclusive club. We have Danielle, Lulu Smith, Claudia, Bianca T and Suzanne. Thank you so much guys, I hope you're enjoying the bonus episodes and a little bit of exclusive Seeing Red merchandise will be winging its way to you very soon. So if you'd like to join the party then please do check us out over at patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. Now I had planned on ending the year on a lighter note, especially as this episode is probably coming out on Christmas Day. I was thinking maybe a nice heist, something like that. Um, Obviously still harrowing for the victims involved, but at least not as brutal as, say, a murder. But then I gave myself a good talking to and thought we might as well end the year as we began it with a brutal multiple murder. And this one really is brutal. This is the story of German Wings Flight 9525, a flight that would end in the murder of 149 people when the suicidal co-pilot deliberately crashed the aircraft into the side of a remote mountain deep in the French Alps. So strap yourselves in, it's going to be a bumpy ride. It was a sunny morning on Tuesday the 24th of March in 2015, as Officer Captain Patrick Sodenheimer and his co-pilot, First Officer Andreas Lubitz, touched down in Barcelona. This was their first flight of the day. 
Their two-hour journey from Dusseldorf had gone smoothly and the 150 or so passengers on board, although tired, were excited to be returning home or starting their holidays. As the passengers disembarked the aircraft and made their way to baggage reclaim, little did they know their journey to the capital of Spain's Catalonia region had nearly ended in disaster. For co-pilot Andreas Lubitz, this had been no ordinary journey. It had been a dry run of a monstrous murder-suicide plot he was planning on carrying out in a matter of hours with another plane load of passengers. Just an hour or so earlier, as Captain Sodenheimer left the cockpit, Lubitz locked the door from the inside and programmed the flight to descend from its cruising altitude of 38,000 feet to just 100 feet, the lowest possible setting. A setting that would cause the plane to crash within 10 minutes. Perhaps this was a dry run, or perhaps Lubitz had intended on crashing the plane then, before having second thoughts at the last minute. Either way, he did not go through with his mortal plan. Instead, he returned the settings to normal almost as soon as he had changed them. He unlocked the cockpit door and Captain Sodenheimer returned to his seat, oblivious to his colleagues' deadly deliberations. The flight resumed as normal and the passengers had a narrow escape. As the crew prepared the aircraft for its return flight to Dusseldorf, 144 passengers queued at the gate at Barcelona Airport. Among them were 16 schoolchildren returning from a foreign exchange trip. Also waiting to board the flight that morning was German national Maria Radner, her husband Sasha Schenk and their two-year-old son Felix. Maria was a world-renowned opera singer who was returning home after two triumphant performances in Wagner's Siegfried at the Grand Teatro del Lysu in Barcelona. She was also travelling with her co-star, the bass baritone, Oleg Brijak. The two-hour flight back to Dusseldorf was delayed slightly but eventually took off at 9am. What happens next is based on flight data and voice recordings from the cockpit. So I'm going to do what I always do and take you there in real time. It's a couple of minutes after 9am now. German Wings Flight 9525 is airborne. There are 144 passengers on board as well as two pilots and four crew. The seatbelt signs are on and the crew are sat in their takeoff seats. Felix, the two-year-old son of opera singer Maria Radner, is excited as he looks out of the window. The sky is clear and he can make out the roads and houses below him. The cars look like tiny ants as the thrust of the engines can be felt as the aircraft speeds northeast towards the Gulf of Lyon before flying over the picturesque French Alps. It's now 9.12am. A crew member buzzes the cockpit and is let in by either Captain Sodenheimer or co-pilot First Officer Lubitz. The three of them have a conversation about the delayed takeoff. They chat for three minutes and then at 9.15am the flight attendant leaves the cockpit. The two pilots continue discussing the stopover in Barcelona and agree how they will manage the delay resulting from the late takeoff. Standard pilot stuff I'm sure. Fast forward to 9.27am and the aircraft is levelling off at a cruising altitude of 38,000 feet. It is now flying 7 miles above the earth and is barely visible to the naked eye on the ground. 
Three minutes later, Marseille en route control centre radios the cockpit to advise them that they are handing over to Marseille air traffic control. A few seconds later, Captain Sodenheimer reads back the air traffic controller's clearance, allowing him to fly the preset flight path. This would be the last communication between air traffic control and the flight crew. It's now 9.30am. We are half an hour into the flight. Captain Sodenheimer tells Lubitz that he is leaving the cockpit to go to the bathroom and he asks him to take over control of the radio. Again, standard protocol, lots of stuff has to be said out loud and in quite a formal way, which I'm sure you can understand, there is no room for miscommunication or misunderstandings here. Therefore, dialogue is often in the form of commands between the two pilots and is often repeated back out loud to confirm one's understanding. After Captain Sodenheimer leaves the cockpit, Lubitz stares out at the infinite horizon and thinks. For 30 seconds he does nothing but think. Then he springs into action and changes the selected altitude from 38,000 feet to 100 feet, just as he had done a few hours earlier on the flight to Barcelona. Except this time, he doesn't change it back. As I said before, 100 feet is the lowest the altitude can be programmed to, and will immediately put the plane into a prolonged descent. Two minutes pass. The aircraft is falling through the skies, but the passengers and crew don't notice yet. Although it is dropping at a rate of several thousand feet a minute, this won't be felt much on board. Three minutes after programming the altitude to 100 feet, Lubitz sets a plane speed to the maximum setting. As it continues to plummet at a rate of 60 feet a second, the wind slows the aircraft's descent and Lubit has to continually readjust the speed setting in order to achieve the required speed of approximately 440 miles an hour. At this point, the plane has dropped to 30,000 feet, well below the 38,000 feet it was supposed to be cruising at. Marseille air traffic control, who were tracking the flight, notice this sudden drop in altitude and radio the cockpit asking what cruise level they were cleared for. Lubitz stares blankly out of the window and does not answer. Over the next 30 seconds, air traffic controllers attempt to contact the cockpit on two more occasions, but they are met with an eerie silence each time. Four minutes have now passed since Captain Sodenheimer left the cockpit to go to the bathroom. When he returns, he buzzes the intercom. Lubitz looks up at a monitor to see the face of his co-pilot, waiting for him to flick the switch to unlock the cockpit door. Lubitz stares blankly at the screen, ignoring his colleague's request. Again, Captain Sodenheimer buzzes the intercom to be let in, but nothing. When he enters an override code to gain access to the cockpit, the door won't budge. Panic that something might have happened to his co-pilot now turns to confusion as he ponders why Lubitz would have deliberately locked the cockpit door from the inside. It's now 9.35am and the plane has plummeted to 21,000 feet. If it carries on at this rate, it will crash in six minutes. Passengers can now feel the descent. Their ears are popping and they can feel the pressure start to build in their sinuses. Those with window seats look out and see mountains. The French Alps are within sight now, and regular flyers over this part of the world are starting to wonder why the mountains appear bigger than ever before. 
The crew know something is wrong, and when they hear noises coming from the direction of the cockpit, they go over to investigate. Captain Sodenheimer is aggressively banging on the door, asking to be let in. He is greeted with silence. Someone from the crew brings him an axe. Air traffic control continue to attempt to make contact with Lubitz, but he ignores their calls. Now armed with an axe, Captain Sodenheimer hits the door repeatedly, all the while pleading with Lubitz to let him in. The plane continues to plummet towards the ground, and the axe is barely making a mark on the door. Passengers can hear this terrifying commotion, and they know the plane is uncontrollably hurtling towards the French Alps. As they begin to scream in blind panic, the oxygen masks descend over their heads. They can feel the power of this aircraft. The immense speed is now breathtaking. Some begin to pray, others attempt to help Captain Sodenheimer, but it is all in vain. In the last 60 seconds of the flight, they can hear the repeated echoes of the flight warning system as it commands sternly, Terrain, terrain, pull up, pull up. Loved ones hold each other tightly. Some people continue to scream and pray. Others appear to have accepted their fate and sit in a sort of stunned silence, an eerie calm descending over them. The plane hurtles into the side of a mountain, deep in the French Alps at 9.41am, just 41 minutes after takeoff. All on board are killed instantly, and the plane is literally obliterated by the force of the impact. Just before the plane crashed, it had become undetectable to air traffic controllers due to its low altitude. Although they wouldn't have seen the plane crash, they would have known that this would be the only possible outcome. Fighter jets that had been scrambled to the rogue aircraft were now called back to base. It was clear that the inevitable had happened. This was the worst aviation crash on French soil in over three decades, and the French authorities immediately set about investigating how an Airbus A320 could literally fall out of the sky. At 10.30am on the morning of the crash, rescue helicopters located the remains of the aeroplane. When they arrived at the scene, they knew instantly there were no survivors. The aircraft had broken into hundreds of thousands of pieces and was literally unrecognisable. When air crash investigators arrived, they spent 10 days combing through the wreckage, recovering what was left of the bodies. Recalling the scene some years later, one of the investigators described seeing children's toys surrounded by the wreckage. A stark reminder that amongst this mass of metal and plastic were the ruined remains of children. The immediate priority was establishing the cause of the crash. The priority for air crash investigators was to locate the black boxes. There are always two separate black boxes on any commercial aircraft. There is the flight data recorder, which literally plots the aircraft's speed, direction and altitude at any given moment in the flight. And there is also the cockpit voice recorder, which is so sensitive that it can pick up the sound of an individual breathing. Just two months before Flight 9525 crashed, there had been a terrorist attack on French soil, and authorities were on high alert. 
In January 2015, brothers Saeed and Sharif Kouachi forced their way into the Paris offices of the satirical newspaper Charlie Hebdo, before killing 12 employees and injuring 11 others. It was quickly established that this was a terrorist attack, carried out in revenge for the newspaper's mocking of the Islamic prophet Muhammad. Was the crash of German Wings Flight 9525 also the result of a terrorist attack? Air crash investigators set to work. They studied the flight path, the altitude, time and direction and noted the aircraft's controlled path downwards. This flight had been completely under control until the moment of impact. To all intents and purposes, it looked like a normal descent, just one that was happening at the wrong time. Additionally, had a bomb been responsible for the plane's sudden descent, the wreckage would have been dispersed across a much greater area, with evidence of the plane being broken into two or three pieces before falling to the earth. This was not consistent with what investigators found at the crash site. Next up, investigators checked the weather conditions at the time of the crash. In the Alps, the weather can change in an instant and snowstorms are common. They looked at whether the pilots may have become disorientated due to poor visibility. However, when they checked records, flying conditions were near perfect in that region at that time. Perhaps there had been a sudden loss of air pressure due to a mechanical failure. Something the crew couldn't control. The Airbus A320 was one of the most popular planes in the sky at the time. And if there had been a mechanical fault on this flight, they needed to establish this as soon as possible. Did the pilot and co-pilot fail to answer Marseille air traffic control because they were unconscious? This was explored as a very possible cause. When the body is deprived of an adequate oxygen supply at tissue level, unconsciousness can follow in just 10 to 15 seconds. This tends to be referred as hypoxia in aviation circles. And this wouldn't be the first time that this had happened on a commercial aircraft. In 2005, Helios Airways Flight 522 lost contact with air traffic control. The aircraft continued on its predetermined flight path, but after 19 failed attempts to contact the flight crew, two F-16 fighter jets were scrambled to establish visual contact. When they pulled up alongside the aircraft in mid-air, they observed that the first officer was slumped motionless at the controls and the captain's seat was empty. As they peered through the windows of the cabin, they could see oxygen masks dangling in front of the passengers' faces. And in a really disturbing twist, as they remained alongside the plane, they saw a flight attendant who was carrying a portable oxygen tank enter the cockpit and sit down at the captain's seat. The flight attendant even waved at the fighter jet pilots before the plane plummeted to the ground when the engine flamed out due to fuel exhaustion. With the Helios Airways flight, it was quickly established that hypoxia had set in due to a mechanical failure. But this was not the case with German Wings Flight 9525. The aircraft had been maintained correctly and was in a good structural condition. Investigators got their breakthrough when they located the cockpit voice recorder in the days that followed the crash. 
They listened in as Captain Sodenheimer went through the pre-flight checklist and First Officer Lubitz repeated commands in confirmation. They observed takeoff and noted this to be normal. There was no hint of trouble. Twelve minutes into the flight, they hear the flight attendant request entry to the cockpit. There is an audible clicking of switches and she opens and closes the door behind her. She inquires about the flight's delay as some of the passengers are asking about the impact this will have on their arrival time. She asks if they want any food or drinks bringing into the cockpit and Lubitz can be heard asking for a snack, what will turn out to be his last meal. The flight attendant leaves. A few minutes later, Lubitz can be heard saying to Captain Sodenheimer, quote, If you need to go to the bathroom, now is your chance. Captain Sodenheimer can be heard leaving the cockpit, and investigators can now hear nothing but Lubitz's breathing. It's controlled and shows no sign that he is struggling for breath, further discrediting the hypoxia theory. Air traffic control can be heard asking what altitude the flight is cleared for, and investigators are baffled by Lubitz's silence. They can still hear him breathing. They hear Captain Sodenheimer attempting to regain access to the cockpit, only for the burst of the intercom to be ignored by Lubitz. This is followed by another buzz that goes unanswered, and then several banging sounds. The banging grows louder and louder, and Captain Sodenheimer can be heard begging to be allowed in. All the while, Lubitz's breathing is clearly audible. The recording goes on to evidence a screaming and sheer panic amongst the passengers before cutting out as the plane smashes into the side of the mountain. So you could perhaps speculate at this point that Lubitz had perhaps fallen unconscious. Maybe he'd had a seizure or a heart attack. Maybe he was still alive and breathing, just unconscious. And yes, that could be the case, but don't forget he deliberately programmed the plane's rapid descent, repeatedly increasing its speed as soon as Captain Sodenheimer had left the cockpit. And he also locked the cockpit doors from the inside so it was very much a deliberate decision on his part to crash the plane. And besides this hard evidence, together with the voice recordings and flight data, there is also a shit ton of circumstantial evidence pointing at Lubitz's culpability. But before we get there, let's find out a little bit more about the man himself. Lubitz first took to the skies as a member of a gliding club in his hometown of Montebourg in West Germany. He was just 27 at the time of the crash and only had around 600 flying hours under his belt. Friends and neighbours described him as a quiet but fun character who enjoyed his job. And a picture from his now defunct Facebook page shows him smiling happily in front of the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. Lubitz lived at his parents' home in Montebourg, which is a small town near Frankfurt with a population of around 12,500. His father Gunther worked in banking and his mother was a church organist. It was a stable upbringing. At the age of 14 he joined the LSC Westerwald Glider Club in Montebourg where he learned to fly in a light aircraft. He was truly passionate about flying and his parents encouraged him in every way possible. Lubitz was also a keen runner and competed in numerous races throughout his teens. A hobby which continued well into adulthood. In 2007, he graduated from high school 
and was accepted as a Lufthansa trainee the following year, enrolling at the company's training school in Bremen in Germany. And this is when things started to go wrong for him. Just 10 weeks into the training with Lufthansa on the 5th of November in 2008, Lubitz withdrew from the programme on medical grounds. What Lufthansa, the parent company of Germanwings, did not know at the time was that Lubitz was suffering from severe depression, which was manifesting itself in psychotic delusions and suicidal thoughts. Lubis had to spend several months in a psychiatric hospital before he was able to resume his training nearly a year later. Now heavily medicated, he was prescribed two types of antidepressants as well as benzodiazepines and other drugs. Lubitz thrived in the training environment. He was judged as being, quote, above standard by his instructors and examiners when he eventually completed the course in 2013. However, in the two years that followed, Lubitz saw more than 40 doctors as he suffered further depressive and psychotic episodes. He was repeatedly absent from work. Although the various doctors Lubitz saw issued sick notes, he did not give any of these to his employer. As far as Lufthansa was concerned, Lubitz was fit to fly. In the months before the crash, Lubitz began to suffer severe insomnia and paranoid delusions, as noted in his medical records which have since come to light. He saw a number of physicians complaining that he was losing his sight. But the problem was not physical, it was mental. And I do sort of understand this because what's the worst ailment that can befall a pilot? Probably the loss of sight. This would render their career over. It's a bit like if a surgeon developed a condition that caused them to shake, again, their career would be over. And I do understand how people can become obsessed and paranoid that the very worst thing that could happen to them is happening to them. I'm sure people will correct me, but it seems to me like an extreme version of OCD an extreme version of intrusive thoughts. And for Lubitz, he was at the start of his career. He was €60,000 in debt with an insurance policy that would only cover his training costs, not provide provisions for future loss of earnings. So I think he sort of became obsessed with the one thing that would spell the end of his career. And he tortured himself with that. And obviously that was totally symptomatic of his mental illness at the time. Anyway, I digress, but the point I'm trying to get across is that Lubitz was severely mentally ill in the months, weeks and days leading up to the crash. He was clearly depressed, suicidal and delusional. And that is not the sort of person you would want to be flying your plane. The 40 or so doctors Lubitz saw in the months leading up to the crash didn't inform his employers that he was depressed, paranoid and suicidal. Indeed, he seemed perfectly healthy to those around him, including his family and even his girlfriend. Lubitz hid his illness very well. According to the air crash investigation report, which is 110 pages long, and yes, I did read all of it, in February 2015, one month before the crash, a private physician diagnosed a psychosomatic disorder and an anxiety disorder and referred Lubitz to a psychotherapist and a psychiatrist. 
The report goes on to say, On the 10th of March in 2015, just two weeks before the crash, the same physician diagnosed a possible psychosis and recommended psychiatric hospital treatment. A psychiatrist prescribed antidepressants and sleeping pills, citalopram and zopiclone for any fact fans out there, in February and March that year. Neither of those healthcare providers, who were probably aware of Lubitz's profession, informed any authority, including the Aviation Authority, nor any other authority about his mental state. On the day of the crash, Lubitz was still suffering from a psychiatric disorder, which was possibly a psychotic depressive episode, and he was taking psychotropic medication. This made him unfit to fly. No action could have been taken by the authorities and or his employer to prevent him from flying that day because they were informed by neither Lubitz himself nor anybody else such as a physician, a colleague or family member that he was unfit to work. The report goes on to note actions on the autopilot system during the first flight of the day may be interpreted as a rehearsal for the suicide as I said earlier on. During cruise on the second flight of the day, the co-pilot waited until he was alone in the cockpit. He then intentionally modified the autopilot settings to order the aeroplane to descend until it collided with the ground. He kept the cockpit door locked during the descent despite requests for access made via the keypad and the cabin interphone. He did not respond to the calls from the civil or military air traffic controllers, nor to the knocks on the door, possibly because of cognitive constriction common when a person is committing suicide. The reinforced structure of the cockpit doors, designed for security reasons to resist penetration, could not be broken from the outside to enable somebody to enter before the aircraft impacted the terrain in the French Alps. The report goes on to find Lubitz culpable for the crash. However, his motive for taking 149 people with him that day can only be speculated at. Interestingly, his father has always maintained his son's innocence. Two years after the crash, Gunther Lubitz informed a press conference that he would be challenging the subsequent criminal investigation. He said, quote, up to now, everyone believes the theory of a co-pilot who was depressed for a long time, who deliberately crashed his plane into a mountain in a planned act. We are convinced this is false. He said many questions remained unanswered and certain aspects of the investigation had been ignored, although he didn't elaborate. So what do you think? I have told the story from the point of view that a suicidal Lubitz deliberately crashed the plane, killing everyone on board. After all, he's dead, so I can say what the hell I like about him. And the experts found him to be responsible too. But I suppose we will never know with absolute certainty what happened in the final moments of German Wings Flight 9525. Governments have been known to cover things up after all. Okay, maybe I'm getting out of control now. If I'm honest though, I really do think Gunther's pleas of innocence on behalf of his son are deep rooted in his inability to conceive his son as a monster, which is completely understandable. Following the crash, several recommendations were put forward to avoid this happening again. 
As was standard for many airlines at the time, Lufthansa changed its protocol to ensure a pilot was never left alone in the cockpit again. And the German healthcare profession was heavily criticised for its strict policy of patient confidentiality at all costs. Additionally, recommendations were put forward to improve cockpit access, such as fingerprint recognition to override any internal locks. I hope you found this case interesting. It's definitely a different one for us. More air crash investigation meets seeing red than just seeing red meets seeing red. And it kind of reminds me of the Peru 2 episodes that we did, which felt like a crossover between us and Banged Up Abroad. So it's definitely a bit of a different one. I've kind of ended it quite bluntly. Um, But I really, really want you guys to discuss this, particularly on Christmas Day if you're really bored or lonely. Um, We'll put a post up on our Facebook page and also on Instagram. Um, So please get in touch with your thoughts around this case. Thank you for listening, and hopefully I've not stumbled too much as the wine has descended through my veins. Um, Anyway, happy holidays to all of you, and we will both see you in the new year. Bye.